Thursday, March 23rd. After five days in a San Diego shipyard refitting and taking on additional equipment, we sailed at 1.30 for our Guadalupe station, a point in the Pacific Ocean described as 27 degrees north latitude, 117 degrees 30 minutes west longitude. Sailed is a status word for what we did. Cuss one waddled like a duck into the channel on its four gigantic diesel outboard motors. Come to think of it, we are licensed as an outboard craft, much to the disgust of the captain, who is a big shipmaster. A powerful seagoing tug sidled up to us like a pill bug and took us in tow. We crawled slowly up San Diego Harbor between the channel markers past active Navy installations, and we saw the sad steel regiments of obsolescence lined up, bow by bow and stern by stern, mothballed and perhaps useless in any conceivable future war. Expensive reminders that the human species has not yet learned to make peace with itself, and equally sad proof that we can always find money for violence. Great activity aboard, because the radio gives us dismal news of wind and waves. The drill rig men are lashing and chaining down everything movable. On the first sea test, the seven-ton block for lowering the drill pipes broke loose and damn near tore off the 98-foot tower. Now it's chained four ways like a rogue elephant. The scientists have secured their beloved instruments, and at every strange sound, the electronics men glance nervously toward their banks of dials and tubes and switches. In the overcast afternoon, we rounded Point Loma and lunged into heavy swell, lurching like an old sow. The huge tower of the drill rig combed the clouds. We made a pool on the greatest roll, and 24 degrees won it. Soon after dark, everyone except the watch hit the sack. Five days on the beach, and we were sure leave weary. Some wife weary, some Tijuana worn, and others faded with the scholastic high life of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Our course is 270 degrees, well west and north of Target, but necessary to keep her headed into the wind. This weather can slow us down seriously. Our tug, writhing and plunging against the tow cable, completely disappears behind the big waves. Old Speedy is making about three and a half knots. I have the upper bunk in the infirmary. If anyone gets hurt or sick, I'm for the deck, but I did get in two nights sleep in one night. The first ended about one o'clock when a chair came up fighting and tried to beat its way to freedom through an iron bulkhead. We lassoed it going by, threw it, and tied it down. Then we had something to eat and climbed back to sleep for our second stretch. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the March 23rd, 1961 journal entry of the great John Steinbeck. He was uh, also a journalist. So, yes, the same John Steinbeck of Grapes of grapes and Wrath, <laughs> of Mice and Men, and The Grapes of Wrath, and uh, lots of other great literary works. Uh, the American uh, writer in the, in the early, mid-1900s, 
uh, was also a journalist, uh, you know, much like some of the other guys, like Hemingway. They had to make money and uh, could only sell so many books, I guess, you know, until you become famous. So they did a lot of journalism. And, and Steinbeck, uh, who was also uh, sort of an adventuresome type, uh, like Hemingway, uh, different, but uh, they both loved that. Uh, they both had that sense of adventure. And uh, this is an article. So it's what so the journal is really uh, was published as uh, he was writing for Life magazine. And uh, I guess this was a March or no, this was an April 7th issue, issue of Life magazine. And uh, or maybe this was the 14th. Anyway, it was shortly after he wrote it. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know, I guess they wired this stuff back back in those days. And because um, he didn't email it <laughs> in 1961. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure he didn't email it. So what is this all about? This, uh, this adventure that, uh, so obviously he's, he's the journalist. Um, that's, <laughs> he has a non-essential role. That's why he's got to sleep in the infirmary and give up his bed whenever somebody's sick. Um, but he did cover this trip and, uh, the, the article is entitled and you probably, you probably picked up on, there was a drill rig involved, right? So you see how this is all coming together. The article, the title of the article was High Drama of Bold Thrust Through the Ocean Floor. So clearly it's got something to do with drilling. It's 1961. And, uh, and if you remember, uh, by the way, this is the continuation of last week. So I should have said that up front. Um, so if you missed, um, if, if you missed last week's exciting episode... Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to stop and go back. It's not like, uh, um, you know, it's not like you're going you're gonna to not understand this one. But I did start out last week uh, with, with uh, a little history of kind of the key, the key moments in, in going offshore in the, uh, in the oil business. And uh, starting with, you know, basically just a fishing pier. <laughs> they didn't call it a fishing pier. I call it a fishing pier in California and then Cato Lake and in Louisiana and, and eventually, and I, I finished last week and I said that I'm going to come back because I didn't want, I didn't want it to run too long uh, last week because I know I'm, I only get you guys for about 30 minutes before something happens and you got to go do something else. So um, uh, at least that, that's what the, that's what the stats reports tell me anyway. So I wanted to, I wanted to get into some more, some of the more interesting things about uh what, how, how all these things, well, so here's the thing, you know, now this, this happens with a lot of stuff. So once, once we've had something in our midst for a long time, um, we tend to not, you know, perhaps appreciate what it took to, uh, like there's, you know, what seems commonplace now is, um, you know, at, at one point in time, probably, you know, was a big problem that somebody had to find, figure out, you know, was probably regarded as being impossible or, uh, you know, too hard or too expensive or whatever it is. And so lots of things like today, um, you know, those of us who, I guess, kind of, uh, you know, grew up in the world of, you know, offshore uh, drilling and production is commonplace and in some very deep places in the world. Um, you know, we just, we, it's not that we, it's not that we don't appreciate the complexity. We know that it's big and it's complex and, and it's expensive and there's a lot of risk involved and, you know, there's, there's financial risk, there's, you know, human risk. I mean, we, and those are the things that we, we congratulate 
uh, all the, all the, the great people in the industry that, that, uh, that figure out how to do all that and make it work so that we can have affordable, abundance, reliable energy. However, you got to figure there's always, there was some point, there was some point when, uh, somebody had to first try this and, and it's not simple. Um, you know, okay, maybe, maybe building the piers 300 feet off the coast of, uh, what was that place called? Summerland, California. Um, I mean, the, no doubt, considering that was the late 1800s, they had their, their, uh, their share of engineering and construction challenges. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not too difficult to wrap your head around, like how to get that done. Um, and, uh, and maybe perhaps later when they were floating barges out onto, onto lakes, um, and you could sink, you could, you know, drop an anchor or 12 and, uh, and keep the barge in place and, and, uh, drill a hole and, you know, then you build a platform and et cetera. And, you know, building, building structures in the water, in shallow water, you know, even, even in the early 1900s wasn't, you know, it was something that was reasonably well understood now, but now when you talk about going out into the open sea, um, it, it does. It seems routine now. Oh yeah. Transocean's got, you know, however many drill ships they go out, they do their thing. Other companies, Saipam, whoever. Um, but now think about it. Like pretend nobody's ever done it before. You can't just sail a boat out into the ocean, stick a pipe in the water and drill a hole. <laughs> you can't because because everything's moving and there's different pressure and and i mean it's a it's kind of a complex problem and um so so we started getting into some of the really interesting bits last week and uh and i said all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap it up and come back and do part two so this is part two and and i decided to open up part two with uh that bit from uh from uh, John Steinbeck from Life Magazine, uh, High Drama of Bold Thrust Through the Ocean Floor uh, is the title of the article and the subtitle, and now this is going to maybe sound familiar to you. The subtitle is Earth's Second Layer is Tapped in Prelude to Mohole. <laughs> mohole. It's just kind of fun saying Mohole. Project Mohole, I did make a brief mention of that last week. Um, and uh, and it, it's a it was a really interesting uh, effort in the 1960s, uh, and so I'm going to tell you about that uh, today. But really, it's kind of like at the end of the story. So first, we got we got a few other things we got to cover. So uh, the first one is uh, one of the things I said last week too was, um, and this is perhaps because I was. Um, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm pulling together a bunch of different th things to try to put a story together for you, you know, I grab something from, you know, I read something over here and I read something over there and I kind of pull the important parts together and, you know, I try to tell the story. And then as I'm telling the story, I realize maybe there's a couple of things I should have <laughs> looked at more closely because the details don't quite line up. And one of those was, um, you know, who exactly, who was first? to go out into the Gulf, you know, some distance, not just on a platform, um, but, and not just on a floating something or other, you know, barge, but, uh, uh, who was, who was first to go out there, uh, into deep, you know, relatively, relatively deep water, um, and start drilling. Now I, uh, 
I did talk about uh, the Kerr McGee company and uh, what was his name? Mr. McGee. I forget Mr. McGee's first name. Um, but he, uh, yeah, and, and, and he was credited with inventing some of the technology that made this possible. Then I also talked about this other, this boat uh, called Cuss One, C-U-S-S-1. And I wasn't sure what it was or even how to say it. It's capital C, capital U, capital S, capital S. And, but there was this company called Global Marine and they did some stuff with it. And, you know, I was kind of, I was getting mixed. Uh, I hadn't looked close enough at the details. So I've, I have sorted all of that out for you this week. And in the process of doing so, I have uncovered some, um, some really cool shit, is, <laughs> as they say. So first, let's clear up this CUS1 business. Uh, now, uh, the first thing is, yes, it is an acronym, C-U-S-S. It's in all capital letters. And it's, a, it's an actual, it's a true acronym, the kind that you can say as a word, as opposed to an abbreviation, which is simply, you know, letters that stand for something else. And uh, this is one of my big pet peeves in society today is we call them all acronyms. But in fact, an acronym is the abbreviation, which you can, you can say it like a word uh, and cuss is, uh, it stands for Conoco Union of California, Superior and Shell. Conoco, Union, Superior, and Shell. Obviously, uh, oil companies uh, from, from the historical archives there. And uh, the Cuss Group started in 1953 with a converted 300-ton naval petrol craft to which was added a draw works and over-the-side drilling floor and derrick which caused unmanageable listing problems. <laughs> listing, for those of you who aren't sailors, means the boat's leaning to one side. <laughs> I bet it did. I bet the 300-ton naval petrol craft to which they added drawworks and an over-the-side over drilling floor and derrick, I bet that caused some listing problems. Uh, but, but you never know until you try, I guess. And so uh, they figured out that that wasn't going to work, and they, they came along with a a second ship uh, that was much larger and more stable and uh, was was put together differently. Uh, and it was called the Coswan. It's only a bunch of oil and gas guys would come up with cuss. As, and, and they probably giggle a little bit every time they say that. Cuss. The cuss one. Uh, anyway, that started in 1953. And so the story... So, so meanwhile, 1961, eight years later, John Steinbeck is on the Coswan. And, uh, and it is, um, it's being used, uh, for this new project, Project Mohole. And which was not a, which was not, uh, I'm going to get to this in a bit, but it was not the purpose of Cus One of, I mean, of Mohole was not to find oil. It was something completely different, but fascinating nonetheless, which is why we're going to get to that, uh, after this. And, uh, so back to, back to this, this bit about the Cus group and, in the first ship that, that had a bit of a leaning problem, and, uh, and and there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of great things that happen here, and and this episode would be too long if I told you about everything, but I can tell you this, which is that uh, some of this some of this good stuff I found um, in an article from January one, January one two thousand and four, which is uh, damn near twenty years ago now. Oh, it just doesn't seem like it, but it is. January 1, 2004 is, a, is a, an article in Offshore Mag called Special Anniversary. 
the history of offshore, developing the EMP infrastructure. And uh, but here's the here's the the great thing about this is uh, and and this is kind of an interesting sidebar. It was writ- this this article, which is the first in a three part history of the offshore industry. So, if you go back to two thousand four offshore mag, you can find these three parts, and it's a it's a wonderful history of the offshore industry, and it's written by somebody named F J Schempf. F J Schempf, and uh, I say somebody. Uh, F J Schempf was actually a pretty well known uh, uh, independent oil journalist, oil industry journalist, and, uh, and he wrote a couple of books, and he's identified in this article as a special correspondent to Offshore Mag. He was quite, he was already quite, uh, quite far along in his career when he wrote this, and in fact, um, I, 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 and you know, and, and the name sounded familiar, and I was like, I think I, this guy, and it turns out, yeah, he is, he's, he was pretty, he was pretty famous in the world of independent oil and gas journalism, and I found his, uh, his obituary because Mr. Schempf is no longer with us, and uh, he was from Houston, and he passed away peacefully uh, after, uh, after some, some uh, medical battles uh, on August 12, 2013, when he was 71 years old. So Mr. Schempf uh, he left us with some great writings, but uh, uh, born 1941 in Tyler, Texas, I have a, I have an interesting story about some time I spent in Tyler, Texas, uh, but it's a drinking story. It's not, it's not for now. Now, um, Mr. Schempf, F. Foster John Schempf, F.J. Schempf, uh, wrote some great stuff. And this particular uh, article, I'm just going to give you a few highlights. Um, he really knew the industry, and uh, and he covered it well. And I was going to give you some highlights, except my highlights have suddenly. Uh, <laughs> disappeared. I have this uh, on my on my trusty iPad Pro. I have uh, a plugin for Safari that allows you to highlight. You know, kind of like use a highlighter, and it's supposed to retain the highlights, and it typically does. Um, and in this particular case, it hasn't. So I'm 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 refreshing while I'm busy. Uh, while I'm while I'm while I'm keeping you busy with my. Uh, uh, witty repartee. Here we go. Ah, my, my highlights are back. All right. Here's some interesting things. Uh, several attempts to develop Gulf of Mexico oil had been made before the war. That's World War II, I believe he's talking about. Um, one operation, however, spearheaded... Oops, there's a pop-up. Get that out of the way. One operation spearheaded in 1937 by Pure Oil Company... Uh, and uh, partner, uh, and they were partnered with Superior Petroleum. It did pay off. It was conducted on a no. <laughs> here, here's the good part. 1937, conducted on a 33,000 acre state offshore lease near the town of Creole, in uh, the, somebody's uh, somebody's Louisiana name is throwing me a little bit. Um, I can't say Chapatulas, but I'm not sure how to say Calcasu. Calcasu. It's Calcasu. I don't know. Somebody, somebody from Louisiana, tell me how you say Calcasieu Cal- Parish. Anyway, about 20 miles east of Cameron. Uh, this, so this is southern Louisiana. And the company's uh, Pure Oil and Superior Petroleum, they built a 30,000 square foot, 30,000 square foot wooden platform in 14 feet. 
of water. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just sounds funny. I mean, these were the early days, right? So, uh, uh, so they did what they, you know, so they, they had baby steps, it had to be baby steps. But a 30,000, so you know, how big is 30,000 square feet? Uh, it's big, right? Isn't that, isn't that like, uh, how big is an acre? I don't know. This is a big platform and uh, 30,000 square foot. This is, so this monstrous wooden platform in 14 feet of water. Uh, I imagine that the locals were excited because they thought they were getting a boardwalk or something like that. But no, in fact, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was for drilling for all folks. And it was, uh, it was erected less than a mile from dry land. Uh, so it was only, you know, it was, it was a lot further out than the 300 feet uh, fishing piers in California, but it was less than a mile out into the water. And uh, they built a, they built this big platform and uh, its mere existence set a record for both platform size and water depth. So nobody had gone I'm more than uh, in the Gulf, in the Gulf of Mexico, water depth in the Gulf of Mexico. So, so this is the beginning. Uh, and, uh, and they basically used a, a land type drilling rig, right? So they just built a platform and then drilled it just like you would if you were drilling land on land. Um, and so this was christened to the Creole field. Now, but here's the thing, the Creole, Creole, Creole field, this 330,000 square foot platform in 14 feet of water, less than uh, a mile from the shore. Uh, it produced oil for more than 30 years, yielding nearly 4 million barrels of oil. And proving early on that offshore EMP could be a highly lucrative enterprise. So, um, you know, some of the people, you know, let's, let's we go back again, right? And there was people developing. Uh, they figured out about the salt domes along the Gulf Coast in Texas, Spindletop, da da da. Somebody said, you know, I bet there's even more out there in the like. However many salt domes we got here, there's probably more out there. And they were right. And that's when the fun started. Uh, and Mr. Schempf here in his uh, history of offshore goes on to explain something. At this point, as things were coming together and people were getting excited about the, uh, the prospect of going out, going out there in the water. Um, uh, I get, I, so there was kind of this uh, training ground. In fact, the whole, the whole offshore petroleum industry, uh, the early kind of figuring out, it, it was all came from this experience that was gained uh, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, you know, in the U.S., these oil companies that were moving their operations, they're moving the equipment and the production to uh, the, the, the drilling equipment and the production equipment uh, out into uh, something called the Gulf Coast Transition Zone. And it was kind of like a training ground uh, because it, was, it wasn't quite out in the water yet. Uh, and it was kind of between the dry land and the marshy, shallow water areas. And, uh, and it was... And, and the tide, like the tidal flow, would would fill it up with water, and um, and and this is where all these guys they kind of got all their know how uh, in figuring out. Uh, you know, basically, it was kind of like this partially protected uh, marine environment, and so it was a great proving ground. It was kind of like uh, it was like what nowadays we would call like the proof of con the proof of concept, or you know, something like that. So. 
the beta version. And, and so a lot of the, so they got the experience that they needed and, uh, they started creating, uh, you know, you know, trying different things, mobile Marine, you know, drilling equipment and, uh, you know, doing different things with barges and, um, you know, floating things in, floating things out. I mean, it was fantastic. And, uh, so that continues on thirties and the forties. And then, and then, ladies and gentlemen, in 1946, now we get to the Kerr-McGee people. 1946, uh, these guys at Kerr-McGee, these engineering wizards, um, they came up with a way uh, to bring, to basically make offshore drilling portable. Uh, and here's what they did. They converted a 327-foot surplus naval materials barge. I think I, I think I mentioned that in my story last week, but this is this is when it happened. So they so this uh, 300 327-foot uh, materials barge, uh, and they converted it into uh, a towable drilling tender. Uh, now again, the uh, the the, uh, the boating terms. A tender, uh, as far as I know, I, I believe a tender is. Uh, should have looked this up, but it's uh, like another. It's like a boat that supplements another boat, and so um, like if you have a big yacht, uh, your tender would be the smaller boat that you kind of run back and forth to the shore or something like that. So they took a floating barge, they turned it into something that you could drill with. Uh, they also used that in conjunction with a, kind of a small fixed platform of some sort, and uh, it turns out, you know, with this whole contraption that they put together, that they could drill wells pretty fast. And uh, so they were picking up momentum and uh, trying things, you know, uh, you know, further out and deeper down. And eventually, uh, they worked with some other companies here, and different people got kind of got in on the uh, on the action. But Kermagee eventually, uh, before long, they built a platform um, that was uh, in the Ship Shoal area off of southwestern Louisiana, and they were 11 miles from the nearest point of land, and the water depth was, it's, it's the Gulf, right? So 11 miles out, now we're at 18 feet instead of 14 feet. So it's still not exactly deep water, but they're 11 miles out. And, um, uh, and so here's kind, of a, here's kind of a fun part, uh, because, you know, another problem, another thing that we have to solve, that even today, uh, a lot of companies continue to try to look for better ways to manage is uh, like the moving of crews of people and equipment back and forth to these offshore facilities. And, uh, and, and, and nowadays with all the digital transformation, there's like new ways of, of managing that and optimizing it and, and, you know, reducing the number of helicopter trips and, and things like this. Um, but, you know, the, but that as, it, as a problem to solve uh, hadn't been a problem to solve before now because, you know, all the drilling was on land. Uh, so now we're in the water. So what do you do with your crew? I mean, the guys can't just, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're 11 miles out in the Gulf. They can't just work all day and, uh, you know, and then go like hit the local diner or the local saloon or, you know, whatever it is. And then, and then hit the sack. Um, so now you got to think about how to get the crews back and forth. In fact, there was one, uh, for a while, uh, if you, if you rewind a little bit in the story, there was one, uh, 
uh, there was a partnership between, I guess, Pure Oil and Magnolia, somebody or other, and uh, they they drilled uh, on a platform. Uh, they actually drilled a well to a, a pretty you know, 9,400 feet. So uh, not fooling around. I mean, they weren't very far out, um, and they were on a platform, you know, a fixed platform, but they drilled the 9,400 feet, and uh, they were producing uh, commercial quantities, and so they made the platform bigger, and, um, uh, and oh, here's a little interesting bit. I, I left this out, but these guys, they actually used, so they made the platform bigger, but then they used uh, directional drilling techniques. So this is in, like, the... Like late 30s, early 40s, uh, they actually use some directional, direct, <laughs> directional drilling uh, on ten more wells. They they built ten more wells on this platform. So, um, but here's the part that I was getting to about getting the crews back and forth. So, but at this time, what what they would do is all the drilling was done during the day, and then you know, and then the crews would like go back uh, to shore in the evening and they come back in the morning. And in this particular case, they were, the crew, uh, was traveling aboard leased shrimp boats. <laughs> so for those of you who don't live here along the Gulf coast, uh, we all know what shrimp boats look like. Cause you can sit out, um, you can sit out on the, uh, on, on the back deck at Murdoch's and, uh, see the shrimp boats go in and out. But, uh, so if you've seen Forrest Gump, Remember Forrest Gump uh, when he has the shrimping the shrimping business with uh, Captain Captain Bob Captain Bob right Captain Rob Captain Bob anyway they got the shrimp boat and remember that boat like that they go out on and you know and this is the boat that they ride through the hurricane in and and Captain Bob or whatever his name he's up in the you know in in the he's kind of perched up there in the the top of it and and it's the it's kind of like a wide flat bottom boat with those like arms that go out uh that's a shrimp boat and they're not very fancy and so these guys were hopping on shrimp boats uh, in and out <laughs> I mean, like that was how they got there, and that was how they got back. Uh, until, until we we so let's come back now again to uh, Kerr McGee, and uh, and they've come up with this uh, this whole like the floating barge and all that, and they're out eleven miles um, uh, from land. And in this case, uh, among other advantages, uh, because of the way they had this put together with the with the with the tender the floating barge and the, the platform so they were able to uh well basically all the drilling equipment and the power and everything was on the tender and uh so that meant that the platform only had to support the derrick and the draw works and so that could be smaller and cut construction costs but but good news for the crew the tender also contained quarters and a galley so um so for the ship's crew and the drilling workers. And so they were able to, uh, so Kermagee was able to expand drilling into the round the clock operation that we are now uh, familiar with today, which is where, you know, people work 12 hours. They work 12 hour shifts for a couple shifts, <laughs> 12 hour shifts for a couple weeks at a time. Then they, and then they rotate, you know, they go, they go back to shore and then they come back. Um, like that whole, that whole routine that is, that, that we know today, this was really the first time they did it. Uh, and it was because they had the space to put the, the, um, uh, to put, to have the crew actually out there at the facility. So, how am I doing? Oh, look at that. I'm already, I'm already past the 30 minute mark, folks. I think, I think, uh, we may have to do, I think it's going to be a part three 
because there's still a lot of stuff. I still haven't gotten to Project Molehole yet. And, uh, and, uh, and I want to be able to, I don't want to just, I don't want to rush through Project Molehole. Trust me, we're going to need to give the Molehole our full attention. <laughs> and so, so I'm going to wrap up. Um, uh, here's a little comment from, uh, from uh, F.J. Schempf in his, uh, in his piece on Offshore History. He says... Kermagee's initial well, though recognized almost immediately for its revolutionary drilling techniques, later earned kudos for having been the world's first producing oil well drilled out of the sight of land. 11 miles out, and uh, this was a big moment, folks, in case, in case you didn't really uh, absorb all the excitement in my voice. Uh, in effect, he says, the well and the rig that drilled it established offshore EMP once and for all as a viable industry. So as of this moment, there was no question that, uh, that we could go out into the, uh, out into the open water and produce, uh, and produce a lot of oil and uh, do it commercially. So there you have it. Now, um, Next week, we will come back for the exciting part three conclusion of uh, this whole story of going out into the water and doing all of these uh, fascinating things. In fact, you know, this whole story, it kind of reminds me of, of uh, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite songs from uh, our Texas music legend here, Lyle Lovett. It goes like this. If I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. And if I had a pony, I'd ride him on my boat. And we could all together go out on the ocean, set me up on my pony on my boat. <laughs>